Hello to my beloved questions you didn't ask audience. Today on January 30, 2024, I stand before you with a heavy heart, navigating the realm of grief. I must be transparent. I'm not okay. But even in the midst of this sorrow, I find the strength to move forward. Tonight is special. It's not just another episode. It's a dedication to my dear sister and friend, Danielle Thomas, who left us on Monday morning. Danny, as I affectionately call her, was not just a friend. She was family. We shared the bond of our alma mater, Florida a University, where we became family. We both studied psychology at FAM, undergrad, and earned our master's degrees at Columbia University, and even had the same mentor in grad school. She made New York feel like home for me, and so much fun. Tonight's show is for her. Danny was a warrior for health equity, following in her late mother's footsteps. She was a social worker by training. She achieved remarkable milestones by the age of 44. From being a clinician on the Kings County Hospital Center Intensive Crisis Stabilization and Treatment Program to Assistant Director of Social Work, and later the Director of Programs and Operations at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Her impact was profound, but Danny's journey was cut short by triple negative breast cancer. This hurts me differently because I'm a triple positive breast cancer survivor. Today, I dedicate harvesting health equity to Danielle Thomas, a tribute to her relentless fight for health equity and a reminder that the battle against disparities is far from over. In honoring Danny, we continue the conversation she passionately championed. Join me in this series, Inspired by Her Legacy. I am what I do. And tonight, we move forward in excellence with caring, just as Danny would have wanted. The opinions expressed on questions you didn't ask are those of the individual participants and do not reflect those of their respective employers and institutions. Harvesting Health Equity, Exploring Food Ways, Black Farming, and the Transformative Power of Food as Medicine. Welcome to Questions You Didn't Ask. I'm your host, Naisha Frey, and today we embark on a journey through the untold stories, challenges, and triumphs surrounding food, health, and justice. In this series, Harvesting Health Equity, we'll explore the transformative power of food as medicine delve into the fight against food insecurity and unravel the rich tapestry of Black food culture. Digging into the U.S. Department of Agriculture's definition, food insecurity means households sometimes can't acquire adequate food due to insufficient money and resources. Shockingly, approximately 33.8 million people live in food insecure households. This challenge persists, especially for minoritized communities like African-Americans, American Indians, and Alaska Native people. Well, why is this crucial? According to the American Society for Nutrition, a suboptimal diet 
contributes to one in every five deaths globally. Did you know that on average, Americans spend approximately $260 a week on food prepared at home? Well, I learned this from Money Watch article by Anne Marie Lee, published in March 2023, which also reports that with the median U.S. household income at $70,774, half the country is spending more than 19% of their annual income on groceries. Now, consider the cost of organic groceries. As reported in a CNET article by David Watsky in February 2023, organic groceries proved to be about 21% more expensive than non-organic, but the gap narrows to about 10% if you exclude meat from the equation. These financial realities highlight the importance of food sovereignty, the right of people to access healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through sustainable methods. With the escalating costs of groceries, the ability to grow one's own food becomes not just a preference, but a necessity for many. Food sovereignty puts the power back into the hands of communities to define their own food and agriculture systems, ensuring access to nutritious options without financial strain. Food as medicine also emerges as a trending approach to improving health outcomes by uniting community sectors like hospitals, farmers, government agencies, and community-based organizations. Some healthcare systems are adopting programs where doctors can prescribe healthy food, reducing the need for invasive health services and lowering healthcare costs. But we're not just exploring the issues, we're engaging conversations with leaders actively shaping the landscape of food justice, starting with Demetrius Hunter, Dr. Monique Gary, and the inspiring Cameron Smith. Our guests share motivations, challenges, and visions for creating a more equitable food system. Join us in this informative journey where we unravel stories, tackle challenges, and explore the possibilities of a world where food isn't just sustenance, but a powerful agent of change. Introducing Demetrius Hunter, a visionary advocate and owner-operator of the Black Farmers Hub and Pina and Zelb's Grocery Stores. As a sixth-generation farmer alongside his wife, Latanya Hunter, they share a 60-acre farm known as Soul City Farm, embodying their dedication to preserving traditional farming practices. Demetrius is committed to combating food access issues in both rural and urban communities. The Black Farmers Hub in Southeast Raleigh serves as a platform for Black farmers and food beverage makers. Inspired by their family legacies, Demetrius and Latanya expanded their efforts with Pina and Zelb's produce market in Norlina, North Carolina. Both markets offer fresh, nutritious produce and meats, becoming a community hub with a cafe area for relaxation Demetrius actively advocates for food sovereignty, promoting youth in Black farming, and supporting older Black farmers in preserving their traditional ways. Recently featured in the Warren Record, March 2023, the article highlighted their mission to address food access challenges. The grand opening of Pina and Zell's Produce Market in April 2023 marked a significant step in providing the community with fresh, locally sourced produce and meats. 
Demetrius's involvement in Wake County CSA project, as featured in an article by Rafi USA, showcases his dedication to creating mutually beneficial economic partnerships between farmers of color and faith groups. His commitment aligns with the Justice for Black Farmers Act, aiming to reverse the decline of Black farmers. In his role as a catalyst for change, Demetrius envisions a future where Black Farmers Hub, Soul City Farm, and Pina and Zell's Produce Market serve as examples for aspiring Black farmers. His dedication to equity from the soil to the pan underscores the transformative impact he seeks to achieve. Demetrius Hunter's work exemplifies a commitment to justice, health, and empowerment, making him a pivotal figure in the fight for food justice and Black farming revitalization. Our next guest, Dr. Monique Gary, who is affectionately called Dr. Mo, is a breast surgeon, educator, and advocate for wellness. Dr. Gary currently serves as a medical director of the Grandview Health Pen Cancer Network Cancer Program, where she also serves as director of the breast program. Dr. Gary believes in the power of the connection between mind, body, and spirit to promote overall wellness and is passionate about addressing the disparities in health outcomes for marginalized people. By both exploring the inequities that lead to these disparities and helping to create pathways for access, Dr. Gary's work, which has been published online, in print media, and featured in peer-reviewed journals, aims to make wellness, physical, mental, and emotional health accessible to all. Dr. Gary completed her medical degree at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine and her general surgery training at UMass, followed by the Breast Surgical Oncology Fellowship at Georgetown University Hospital. She holds faculty appointments in surgery and serves as the adjunct associate professor of the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. As a medical advisor, contributor for national breast cancer advocacy organizations, including Living Beyond Breast Cancer, Touch, the Breast Cancer Alliance, Tiger Lily Foundation, the Chrysalis Initiative, and the National LGBT Cancer Network. Beyond her surgical work, Dr. Gary is building a movement to achieve true health equity and help communities develop holistic and integrative approaches to cancer care and wellness. She is CEO of Still Rise Farm, a 40-acre farm that was founded as a living learning laboratory for cancer patients and under-resourced marginalized communities. The farm intended as a one-stop destination for wellness information, resources, and support is in Upper Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where Dr. Gary can be found teaching mindfulness, body positivity, sexual wellness, and the principles of food as medicine. Dr. Gary can also be found on Radio One stations in Philadelphia, giving tips for healthy living and cancer risk reduction, and weekly on blackdoctor.org as the co-host of The Doctor Is In, a web series dedicated to promoting survivorship and breast cancer patients and arming them with both science and support. 
for their journey. Our third and final guest is Cameron Smith, a proud resident of Old East Durham and a community activist and organizer. She has been serving in place-based development work for over 23 years, both stateside and abroad. Cameron is one of the founding members and currently serves as executive director of Communities in Partnership, CIP, a community-rooted organizing and education group based in Old East Durham. CIP focuses on addressing policy and systemic inequity for BIPOC and materially poor people within Durham, focusing on social determinants of health, economic development, gentrification, and housing. Cameron Smith, a dedicated leader, actively contributes to fostering positive change as a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Cultural Health Leader and an Aspen Institute Healthy Communities Fellow she engages in initiatives promoting health equity. Locally, Cameron serves as chair of Organizing Against Racism Durham and is a member of the Racial Equity Task Force for the city of Durham. Nationally, she plays a pivotal role in the Equitable Food-Oriented Development, EFOD, executive and steering committees, reshaping the narrative around food, community, and economic development. Cameron's multifaceted involvement showcases her commitment to equity on various levels. She had also co-authored a peer-reviewed article with another CIP co-founder, Aliyah Abdur-Rahman, and two academic partners, Dr. Danielle Spurlock of UNC Chapel Hill City and Regional Planning, and Dr. Kay Jowers, Duke's Nicholas Institute of the Environment on the ideology of how CIP was founded and operates from a developmental model versus the common charity-based model. CIP has also been recently chosen to participate in the Kresge Foundation's Fostering Urban Equitable Leadership, FUEL, which is an initiative to support the talent and leadership development needs of Kresge grantees with a specific focus on racial equity and developing the leadership in emerging BIPOC leaders nationally, as well as Robert Wood Johnson's Pioneering Ideas Organizational Fellowship. Cameron and her husband, Ernest, a civil rights attorney, currently practicing law where they love, live, and work in their community in Northeast Central Durham. They are the proud parents of five adult children, three girls, one son, and one son-in-law, four of whom are rooted in the community, and their shepherd mix, Charlie, and their corgi granddog, Oswald. Okay, well, I am so glad to have you all um, with me today on questions you didn't ask. This is going to be a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Each one of you brings such a wonderful background and a unique perspective. And I'm proud to have this group because each one of you have touched my lives in different ways at different times in my career and different times of my development. I have to shout out my fellow Rattler, of course, Dr. Gary. <laughs> hey, there you go. Yeah. We strike, that's, strike, strike again. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Got to shout that out. And then my homies from North Carolina, Cameron Smith, hailing from Durham, and then Demetrius Hunter, of course, uh, from Raleigh and right out there in Warren County. Is that correct? Yes, it is. All right. It's All Warren right. County, Carolina, Warren County, North Carolina. That's right. So we're going to jump yes. right into the conversation. 
And the first question is, you know, we're talking about black culture, food ways, ways of healing, farming, and all that good stuff, right? So what are some of your most endearing memories about farming, gardening, or just Black food culture in, in general? Like, what would you say are some of your most endearing memories? And whoever wants to start, jump right in. So, yeah, um, tell me. One of, one of the most endearing moments, I would say, when uh, we had a soil to pan annual festival, food festival, and there were so many different cultures of our our people in one space and uh everyone had an opportunity to try foods from different countries from africa and also of course the southern american style black cuisines from louisiana and the Gullah islands and um you know just playing music from all over our music the you know reggae was there um, we had reggae singers it was just it's a really, really nice time to enjoy family and friends and um, people enjoyed it. I, I, I love to see people smiling and, um, you know, when they eat, they dance while they're eating and stuff. So I totally enjoyed that. <laughs> now, is that the festival yeah. that I so went that to was, that was right there at the uh, Black Farmers Hub or is that a different one? Yeah. Yeah, I believe. You. Well, I've had a few, but I if it was a several different food food ways there um benin did you mm -hmm. see the benin um food? yep that's the one that yes really enjoyed that yes bringing people together um at black farmers hub mm -hmm. bringing musicians yes. together um there's always good music at black farmers hub by the way <laughs> as well as always good yeah. food right but yes it's always yes. wonderful yes. and i think you bring a up something that's really important too is that you know, Southern cuisine is diverse. Like Gullah food mm -hmm. is not exactly the same as what you find in New Orleans. It's not exactly the same that you'll find in, I don't know, um, Virginia, right? So yes, I exactly. think that's yes. really important distinction. And yes, who else wants to talk about their most endearing memories about either farming, home gardening, or just Black food culture in general? You know, I'll I'll go next. And I'll, I remember my grandfather, who is from Sumter, South Carolina, he grew up on a farm and he would always tell us his experiences of the freshest food you could ever imagine. And you go right out and you pick the corn and you, you know, it just was always these wonderful sort of homespun stories. But then he migrated north in his, uh, I, I want to say probably in his 30s or so. And so we grew up in Philly. And in the concrete jungle, right? We had our little patch of, of, mm -hmm. of green on the side of the house. And my sister and I thought that, well, we, we can garden, we can farm too. And so we were so excited and we <laughs> planted all these seeds. And we thought, you know, we were going to have the, the just the most pristine garden. And we grew one carrot. <laughs> one carrot. And, and it was about as long, I'm not giving you a finger, but it's about as long as my middle finger. And we were so excited that this one little carrot that finally grew out of all the seeds and, you know, all the, who knows whose dogs from the neighborhood ran all through the yard and whatever. 
But we grew this one carrot and we were so proud that we pulled it up and we cleaned it off. We washed it up real good. We cut that thing up in little pieces and sauteed it in a pan <laughs> with some butter. And my mother came and said, what are y'all doing? And we had our one little carrot that we were sharing that we were just so proud of. And, 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 and it's funny because we thought it was going to be easy because he mm. made it so easy. And what we learned was that Farming, gardening, growing anything from from the land, it, it isn't as easy as it seems, especially when you live in the concrete jungle, you know, in, in, in North Philly. And so that's probably, I don't know how endearing that is, but it stuck with me because one, the sense of pride that we felt from, from yeah. growing and eating something that we grew, like that was incredible. But two, how difficult it was just to grow a dang carrot. It was not yeah. easy. Yes, indeed. It is not easy. That's right. Cameron, I know you've got one or two good stories up your sleeve. Tell us, what is your most endearing memory about gardening, farming, or just Black food culture? Yeah, so I was born and raised in the foothills and the mountains in North Carolina. So I grew up with on both sides of my family, one from Burke County in North Carolina and the other one from Caldwell County. Everybody raising, having our own hogs or, you know, having, having land. My grandfather had a worm bed. I remember him picking me up and holding <laughs> me over the edges of, of the, con it's four, it's, it's four sided, sit, sit, you know, like the, the cinder block kind of thing and, mm -hmm. and showing me about the worms and whatnot and massive gardens all around me, flower gardens all around me. Mm. My grandmother having massive tomatoes on the windowsill every summer. Her mm -hmm. teaching me how to do cut down corn off the cob, always having more food, everyone coming to our house, you know, and enjoying all that delicious fresh cabbage, fresh, mm -hmm. um, fresh cucumbers, fresh watermelons, all types of just an overabundance of food all just over and over again. And then after we, I got married, you know, raised and got married to another college country black folk. I'm, I, I, when I talk about, I'm, I'm a proud descendant of country black folk. Married another, another, I uh, married a young man who was a descendant of country black folk who had a very similar upraising, you know, with, with his family. And we decided to take our kids and move to Eastern Europe for a period of time for like two and a half years. And how that just basically started oozing out of me again in the middle of Eastern Europe with growing my own food in the backyard with our kids and how close to growing food and how healing that's always been for me. And even with that, even learning all of those recipes and having Black Southern identity deeply embedded, which is very adjacent to the diasporic African identity, how that just came out of me, even in the place of colonizers mm. <laughs> on, on, in European land, and how it was really it was really, really healing and good for me and how we were able in that environment um, to even pass that down to our kids. My oldest is a chef. Oh, wonderful. Really, all of our kids are into food in some way, shape or form. But she's the one that's 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 professionally trained in that. And so, you know, it's just been it's just in our it's in our DNA, even though in a lot of regards, I was raised in a place where growing food was not one that came out of pain and trauma, even though that has been historically. Mm. So those, for me, that has been, it has been wonderful, wonderful memories. And for my kids, it's been wonderful memories. And, 
and everywhere, every house I've, everywhere my, we've gone and taken, I've always had gardens um, up until, mm-hmm. you know, the, the crazy rat race of running a nonprofit. <laughs> but I, you know, even, <laughs> even container gardens, even having five different varieties of tomatoes growing in different pots, you know, just the, any, mm-hmm. any place I can do what I know that I can manage for that season is what I try to do. And so I'm, I consider myself being very blessed from what I call country black folk with, uh, with, with, with a love of fresh food, a love of the land, and also um, an appreciation of our food ways. And so those are all memories that I've been blessed to come that have flown intergenerationally through me and that we've been able to kind of flow through and pass down to our kids. So that's been a blessing and something very beautiful for us. That's wonderful. And I love how each one of you talked about your connection to family, to community. Even you, Dr. Gary, talking about the dogs and, the, you know, the the elements of the concrete jungle, you know, and how this Black food culture has shaped our connection to our community. I just, I love that. Would anybody like to talk more about how that culture has shaped your own connection to your community? I guess I can I could go and talk about how it shaped some of the maybe some of the not so healthy ways also right mm. and and I know we're going to talk a lot about health but you mm-hmm. know I, I I grew up understanding food to be love and mm. you know this black food that that we ate it's a complicated relationship uh, that I've had because we're certainly we're not a monolith right and and we've heard from the the other panelists talking about you know just the different types of cuisine and, and and the different ways of preparing it, you know, but growing up for us, food was block parties. It was hot dogs. It was hamburgers. It was, you know, can mm-hmm. I get that McDonald's? Can I, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't this deep connection with, with earth and with food as medicine, like that part was missing for me. And I think it shaped mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, a, a, a lot of the, the connection that we had was around food. We gathered, there was mm-hmm. food clean that plate because that food costs money. And it was, you know, so some of the the things that we learned about food might not have been the healthiest things, right? Mm -hmm. Because do we ever now gather just to walk or gather to talk or gather to do other things that don't include food? And when we do, it's like, where's the food at? Mm -hmm. But now we have some, some eating habits and some issues and some things going on in in our families and our communities. And, and food has, somehow placated and it's been a lot of different roles for us that that haven't always been the healthiest things and it's so i i love hearing you know cameron talk about you know this relationship with having a garden and and, and your family understanding where that comes from and how to provide for yourself because i think that that's been a missing piece at least in my mm-hmm. urban growing up we, we, we missed that part. It was like, you know what, food, when we're sad, food, when we're happy, food, when we're gathered, food, when we're angry, food, when we somebody dies. So it's it's so much of a relationship of food as, as um, a different type of medicine to for our mm-hmm. emotions. And, and mm-hmm. I think that is something that has passed down in generations and, and it requires some, some undoing uh, in, in my family, at least. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we could talk about our connection, how Black food culture, you know, connects us to our community, how that also shapes our health practices. And I think it's also important for us to think about our different journeys. Like, at least for me, I think about different people in my family and how they've had journeys with food, 
right? Journeys with community and food, journeys with food, community and health practices. And it all, it didn't always look the same, right? So tell us about your journey with Black food culture and community and health practices. I could chime in on, you know, my journey as a kid growing up, you know, I wasn't with my father, but he would come over with his truck. He had a fruit and vegetable truck and he would uh, bring the truck and I would jump all in the truck, look at all the food and was in awe that he had all of this food. But never did I think that I would, you know, actually work with him up to his uh, retirement. But as I got older, I went out every weekend. I learned, you know, from the elders, you know, what they ate. Some of it was good. Some of it was really, really bad. I saw a lot of people going on dialysis machines. I -hmm. saw um, nonprofit agencies dumping cakes, two day old Mm -hmm. cakes and bread and just, you know, elderly people eating, uh, consuming a lot of this food. And then, you know, months later or years later, amputations and uh you know i always said if i ever started to sell produce i would make sure at least majority of the stuff that i would sell would be healthy so cameron did you want to share anything about your experience around community and health practices related to black food culture yeah and so part of this is i you know i think it's a both and scenario coming mm-hmm. from, I agree with what Dr. Gary was talking about as food's an expression of love. Because I think oftentimes, you know, I I, I struggle mm-hmm. being in our community, living in a community that's majority black, majority brown, and has been intentionally divested from, and making mm-hmm. sure that I'm not pathologizing my people in my community for the state that we're in. Because I think that everything, you know, is done for a reason, you know. Mm-hmm. And I agree with, you know, Demetrius, you know, seeing, you know, it's the struggle in my family. It was, you know, working really hard, having BMIs that were dangerously close to, you know, unhealthy, but being from big, strong, quote unquote, black people that generally speaking, I guess could kind of pass the muster, but it still wasn't healthy at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so what, how that looked was not necessarily diabetes, but heart disease you know, Mm. and also in terms of other issues and maladies that are related to that. And so, you know, how do we look at our food ways with the way that we can still be very much so acknowledging? Because what what Demetrius had brought up earlier was seeing nonprofits dump cakes and pies and cookies in our communities, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember Mm -hmm. my grandmother going and getting from the, the, from the, from the food program from the feds, you know, with that block cheese and the powdered mm-hmm. milk mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the canned meat. And that is so toxic. You know, it's just, it's so, so toxic um, for our bodies. And, and the thing about all of this, like what, what Monique was saying, cause she's telling me to call her Monique. So I'm gonna call her Monique. <laughs> so the thing about it is, is, you know, that formulates that there's a reason why McDonald's tastes so good. Come on with it. Mm. There's a reason why. And when you put a group of people who have a history of trauma and abuse and and being with and all sorts of economic and systemic oppression, and you set up 
a science of fast food that measures the pleasure receptors and how our bodies mm. formulate habits of eating that food. So what are you going to do when you get stressed out? Because, you know, living mm. in our communities can be filled with a lot of great joy and beauty, but it can also be a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. So when you're de-stressing, what are you going to do? You're going to run down to McDonald's. You're not going to go to necessarily the subway. And subway's got its own issues too. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's not... <laughs> <laughs> but what you gonna do? And we are not in? endorsing any no, particular not, restaurant or no, not. not right? Exactly. No, we're not. But I'm just saying, what's in our communities is the Church's fried right. chickens, the KFCs, right. the McDonald's, the Burger Kings. Now you know subways are popping up every once in a while, and so people don't run into the subways; they run down to McDonald's and get that Big Mac. You know, mm -hmm. and so you know, but you formulate a taste because your body is calling for that. Mm. And mm. how do we how do we have a conversation? about the healing component, because that's, that's a big lift, you know, without mm -hmm. pathologizing our people, because at the end of the day, we didn't, we didn't take the fresh food access out of our communities. How about that? Mm. It wasn't us. And we definitely didn't stick the McDonald's in there when they first started coming in there. Mm -hmm. Now we do, because you have certain echelons of black people able to afford the, you know, the franchises and whatnot, but yes. we didn't start it. We didn't start it. So mm -hmm. how do we, you know, at the same time, be true about what's killing us while holding on to those, you know, the good fresh collards, the the cabbage, you know, all the ways that my grandmother taught me to cook that I've, we've passed down. But there are also some ways in that that we've had to, like, you know, to have, you know, the, the fat back mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. have a level, you know, and some of, you know, chitlins. Let's talk, you know, mm -hmm. things of that nature that we're forced upon us to have any level of protein and sometimes even fat in our diet, which our body needs, but that was the wrong, that was the wrong category or the wrong types mm -hmm. of protein and fat. Mm -hmm. That's the type of protein and fat long-term that will kill you. And unfortunately they are, we, we, because we are a very brilliant people. We learned how to take nothing and make something out of it. We made it taste really good, mm. you know? And how do you undo all that? Or how do you flip it around to where it's not having a lot of the very negative health outcomes and impacts that we're currently seeing? Yeah, it's just, it's I difficult. Love it. I got to jump in here because I really debated about bringing up this one particular perspective on the identity that we assume about the food that we eat, you know, to the point where if you start talking about certain foods, and you can't make that food or you don't like that food or you don't eat that food, your black card gets revoked. And I'm gonna call myself out, right? Because there's certain things that I just don't, I, I don't love, I don't enjoy mm -hmm. a, a, of, of soul food culture that I didn't as a child, maybe some texture issues or other things, but it became a source of sort of isolation from, mm. what do you mean you don't like cornbread. Who don't like cornbread? I'm like, well, it's not corn. It's not bread. It's not cake. I, the texture for me is, is is something that I don't enjoy. Or maybe mm -hmm. you don't like black eyed peas or you like mm -hmm. your vegetables a little on the crispier, crunchier side of things and not so much the, you know, the collard greens or the string beans the way my grandmother used to make with the, the um, with, with the ham hocks and the potatoes. Right. Mm -hmm. That doesn't that doesn't do it for you. But we we have assumed some of these things to the point where we don't identify with a healthier way of life. Also to Cameron's point is that, you know, we did what we had to do to survive, but now we're, we're stuck in that ownership because we've owned the unhealthy parts of it as well. And, mm. and there's a lot of undoing, I think that, or, or I don't want to, to put a, a judgment on it, but we can, we can choose, right? 
to to enjoy the things we like in a healthier way. And I think that that choice and that culture, that wave of Black cooking and culinary thought and nutrition is something that I'm really happy to to see, right? We can have soul food and, and, and not necessarily the things that made it hypertensive for us. And we can still honor our ancestors and just say, you know, we did what we needed to do to survive. Um, but I, I did want to highlight the, the ways in which we use food to sort of define and, and, and even mm-hmm. ostracize ourselves from the culture. Mm-hmm. So that gets to another question that I was, uh, you know, I was actually motivated to ask this question based on my last series, which was what misconceptions about Black food culture, farming, gardening, or even fishing that gets your goat the most? And I think we already touched on some of them. Cameron may have already said hers. Dr. Monique, excuse me, darling, may have said hers. Demetrius, do you have any? I mean, you're in the space where you're growing and selling food. What what misconceptions about Black food, food culture really get your goat? I would say, can I do two? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. One is Farming, a farming period, I don't think people take it as serious as it is or should mm. be. One end, you have people who think it should be free food. And I think it does an injustice to Black farmers, especially those who ancestors were enslaved. You know, it's nothing wrong. And like Dr. Gary said about surviving and being in survival mode whatever donation services are out there, you know, it's, it's good, good that they're there if it's healthy foods, Mm. but for those who can afford to buy and and support black farmers or farmers period, I think it is a must for the survivor of black farmers. So that's, that's my take on, on that part. I'll leave that one because that one is the most important to me. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, by by starting to share and uncover, you know, our own personal stories connected to Black food culture, our identity around Blackness and food preferences, right? Um, I definitely can relate to you, Monique, about, I'm, I did this to one of my research advisors, right? Where <laughs> I was at the University of Michigan for a summer research program. And there's this wonderful, wonderful woman that was my research advisor for the summer and she's Jamaican and we're talking and she tells me that she doesn't like collard. She don't like no greens. And I was like, I think I actually told her that her black card had been revoked or demoted because of that. So, I mean, we do those things in jest, right? She and I laughed and this and that, but I remember walking away from her office thinking about like, how is it? Oh my gosh. She doesn't like collards or any type of greens in that, in that family. So I, I can totally get where you're coming from. And in, and on the same token, my family had a different way of eating, a different connection to food. And we tended to have more organic, natural health foods, along with the other stuff, with some very particular exceptions around pork and things like chitlins. You know, people tell me all the time chitlins taste good. I would never know. And I'm not interested in finding out, but I understand (laughs) that for some of our people, it's a staple in their diet or at least a delicacy, right? I definitely hear a lot more people now talking about it as it's a special treat. It's a delicacy. It's not something that they eat all the time, but when they get a chance, they really enjoy it. So 
you know, we have those different, we have to recognize again that there's so much diversity within the Black community in regard to how we grew up and what our connections are to food and how they shape our identity and our culture. So what motivated you guys to focus your time, your talent, your treasure to address the food and nutrition needs of our community? What motivated you to start on that journey? And how did you get started in this work? So cancer did. And not mm. just cancer, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a breast surgeon and, and I see people with cancer all day long, but that wasn't enough to, to do it. Because when you think about the journey to become a doctor, so much of our education is spent in learning to diagnose, treat disease and keep a person alive. But that's mm -hmm. not where it ends. That's where it begins. Mm -hmm. But that's where the education ends, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so it was patience that sent me on a journey of, of, of self-discovery and, mm. and really self-taught knowledge about how food is medicine, how specifically, not just, you know, the, the macro and micronutrients of food, but how does it assist the body in, in recovering and in wellness and being whole? Because my patients ask me the first, you know, the third question is always about food. The first one, am I going to die? Two is, do I need chemo? And number three is, how should I be living? How, what, should, what food should I eat? What should I avoid? Mm -hmm. how, can I, how can my food be medicine? I really don't want these toxic drugs. And mm. isn't there something holistic I can do? Mm -hmm. And those aren't any of the things that I was taught in medical school. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of, of learning to do to be able to answer those questions in a meaningful way besides just, well, you know, I'm going to connect you to the dietitian and she'll teach you to read labels right. and, you know, eat good food and get good rest. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's not an acceptable answer when you're facing, you know, your, your, your mortality and you're thinking about how do you pivot for your whole family? Because maybe you knew there weren't some things that you there were things you wanted to change in your diet and in your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say that um, this oncology journey really is, is what did it for me. And, you know, I, I got the farm here in Pennsylvania because I wanted us to have a, a space for education and for learning the things that I didn't get to learn. And that I know as patients, they, you know, they struggle with wrapping their minds around also about these concepts of integrative wellness and how it relates to, um, to cancer, chronic illness. So, you know, we call it a living learning laboratory here because mm. you're going to come and you're going to figure it out what works for you and what can you take back to your community that works in your environment, not just to come here and have an amazing experience, but if you can't take it back with you, then mm -hmm. it's not truly transformative. So that that's what got me started. And, and we're still on this journey of figuring out what that looks like for various communities, because what I discovered was that it's not unique to cancer patients. Mm -hmm. you know, cancer patients may be starting from a place of facing their mortality, but it's the same questions that folks with diabetes have, the same question mm -hmm. folks with kids with ADHD have, people with you know heart disease and other, everybody's searching for these mm -hmm. answers. And, and the answers are, are very likely in, in the land and in the food. Mm. And I know each of you have some very... Cameron and Demetrius have some very compelling stories about what motivated you and how you got started in this work. So I'm excited for my listeners. Well, back again with my father, you know, he, he farmed and he brought produce, fresh produce out of his garden or farm, I should say, from Johnston County on a mule and cart back in the twenties. And, you know, hearing that story over and over, it inspired me 
to, uh, you know, make sure that I would continue that legacy. And um, when I got married, I guess, with my me and my wife, uh, LaTanya, we decided to move back to a space where we could um, grow our own food and just bring the culture of foodways back to Warren County. Warren County is so rich in history. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we just wanted to share what we had. And, you know, we're here now on our third year and, you know, just grateful to, you know, be able to start this new journey of farming. So that's really quick, but that's where I'm at. That's wonderful. So, so passing down, you know, unintentionally passing down, you know, from your father, not something that you set out to do, but something that you grew into. That's awesome. Yeah. And then having a beautiful partner who's also one of my classmates, in Low Ingalls in the house, <laughs> who, you know, had a similar family legacy. Mm -hmm. Yes. And now we can channel that to our daughter and uh, she'll be the fit, well, fifth for me, fourth for her generation of farmers. So I'm really excited about that. Awesome. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Cameron, would you like to share what motivated you to focus on addressing the food and nutrition needs of our community and how you got started in this work? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it, like I said, it kind of started for us, started for me just being coming from the family that I came from, but I guess coalesced in terms of actualizing something outside of our household began with our Roma brothers and sisters in Romania and then kind of mm -hmm. translated here in the United States when we moved back stateside. And so and it was kind of, you know, in our neighborhood because I live in Northeast Central Durham. And so there's, a, you know, food apartheid is very much so very mm -hmm. present in a lot of our communities. And so, you know, our organization is founded by people living in our community directly and intentionally historically impacted by our systemic and institutional racism and racist policies. And so, you know, um, the folks on the board, you know, were struggling with the issues that a lot of materially poor black and brown people deal with. And so mm -hmm. we did door to door appreciative inquiry, listening to our neighbors in between the board and which were our neighbors. Everybody on the board kind of lived together in the same neighborhood. And then we listened to our neighbors and, you know, it always was food, housing, you know, the lack of, uh, you know, lack of a true living wage job, lack of health care things. So we listened to our constituency in terms of who our neighbors were. And one of our board members, I remember when we were, we would have what we consider, I guess, food poundings for people because when, you know, if they didn't have food, we make sure, you know, and we came together and we just, came out of our pockets. And so one of our founding members who's, uh, who used to be on our board, you know, stated, why don't we create our own food co-op? And so that's how we got started. And that's how we got started with the, the basis of a lot of our food systems work, which is the largest breadth of our work in CIP. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that, that's, that's how we got started was because people and a lot of our board members suffer with chronic illnesses, like mm -hmm. diabetes, hypertension, We've lost elders to to diabetes unnecessarily. COVID has, you know, exacerbated mm -hmm. a lot of issues for our people because we already had people that had comorbidity health risks pre-COVID and COVID just, you know, we were chewing our nails trying to make sure everybody was okay because we knew we had a high rate of people with hypertension. We had a high rate of people with diabetes. 
and we know mm -hmm. what the health outcomes. And so when you have all those things, which are directly tied to food apartheid. And so mm -hmm. for us, every single thing, when we look at the, you know, even though we, our largest breadth of our work is in food, but we look at how food intersects with housing and how housing intersects with, you know, abolitionism and how abolitionism intersects back with food and education and, and black maternal health outcomes. So we look at all those things, you know, in our work that we're doing because every, we don't live mm -hmm. siloed lives. Nobody lives a siloed life. It's just that you've created a system in your own image and you control all of the tools and you control all the levers and you control everything. You can pretend like everything is silent. And so, but for our communities, we can't, we can't do that. So clearly if you do, people die, unfortunately. Thank you for listening to Questions You Didn't Ask with me, Naisha Frey, and my guests, Demetrius Hunter, Dr. Monique Gary, and Cameron Smith. Tune in next week as our series, Harvesting Health Equity, exploring foodways, Black farming, and the transformative power of food as medicine continues.